0: Hello and welcome to the AMBOSS podcast, Beyond the Textbook. Every two weeks, experts from AMBOSS, the medical education platform, interview medical students and healthcare professionals to showcase international perspectives on everything in medical school and beyond the textbook. I am your host today, AMBOSS Partnerships Manager, Dr. Tanner Schrank. Medicine is a complex field. There are traditional ways of learning it with lectures and textbooks, and then there are more novel methods, such as using online medical education platforms, test prep materials. And with the pandemic turning the field on its head, it stands to reason that more disruptions must be coming. And along with them, more complexity from startups, companies, and investors aiming to fill students' needs. Today, we sat down with Stanford Assistant Professor Sharif Vakili to find out what medical students should know before starting their residency and to learn more about the ins and outs of the medical education field. So, Sharif, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you, Tanner. It's my privilege.
0: So, first off, could you take us on your personal medical journey?
1: Yeah, sure. So I guess my path was a little bit less traditional. And I'm biased. I'm a big fan of non traditional career paths through medicine, because I think there could be more opportunities for interesting, unexpected existential fits. When you look beyond what may be immediately obvious, at least in medicine, where, Mm -hmm. you know, you can get on the career path as a 17 year old and then not get off till you're like 35 and you wonder where all the years had gone. So right now I am a part time practicing physician. I see patients at Stanford Primary Care and it's so rewarding. But my full time job is actually as a venture capitalist. And to get here, it was really a journey of keeping an eye out for things that overlap between medicine and business and going to business school in the middle of medical school.
0: So you went to Yale and then Harvard Business School and Johns Hopkins.
1: Yeah, yeah. But you don't need to do that. (laughs) I was just very lucky to get lucky in multiple admission cycles and stuff. But when I was 17, trying to pick between even which colleges to go to, Mm -hmm. I was even at one point considering doing music conservatory, believe it or not. I had even gone into these combined degree BA, MD programs, which are very similar to how the European medical system is set up where instead of eight years, it might be seven years. Uh, mm-hmm. And they were really enticing. But I honestly thought it was a trap because it's very hard to figure out what you want to do for the rest of your life at the age of 17. Yeah. You know, I have empathy for my European counterparts who have to differentiate a little bit earlier than in the States. Some people they know, but I think for most people, it, it can be quite challenging. And so I was very thankful to go to a classic liberal arts college where I could explore different things. And I was interested in everything. During that time, I I also ended up getting a master's in biology. And medicine is where I ultimately gravitated back towards. Mm-hmm. But I think it was very different. Sort of exploring those different pathways, leaving it, and then coming back to it, and you sort of have a little bit more existential certainty and conviction, and that's mm-hmm. important. Yeah. But I remember talking to MDMBA students at Yale who are doing their combined five-year program because that seemed like an interesting way to marry some of the interests I have. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to just see patients, and that's it. I wanted to explore a little bit further, and so. The advice I was given, this advice I'd give others is if you're interested in business and medicine and you're sort of at that early stage of your career, just focus on getting into medical school. Okay. Um, and once you're in medical school, then you can start thinking about how to explore some of these other pathways.
0: Now, is that because that's like the biggest hurdle? And then you can worry about other things which are easier to get into?
1: Yes. Okay. That's part okay. of it. Yeah. And also because it's probably easier to throw business on as a twist to medicine mm-hmm. the other way around. Um, and one of the pieces of advice that I was given by Simeon George, the CEO of SR1s and M, if you don't keep up with medicine, you lose it. You can't just like jump back into it. You really have to commit yourself where a business you can leave and come back. It's not like you're going to forget illness scripts and yeah. <laughs> management and paradigms.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: So anyway, when I then got to medical school, I ended up going to Hopkins. I was just taking it a, a year at a time, really focused on just trying to be the best physician I could be, but then also apply to business school and see what would happen. Mm-hmm. And the time I did it was between third and fourth year of medical school, which is a common time, at least in the States, mm-hmm. to take time off before you have to send your residency applications and differentiate. And it was everything I'd hoped and then some, it just opened my eyes to this entire world of opportunities. Wow.
0: This very non-traditional path you took, I think it's really cool. And I feel like that's kind of necessary for a lot of people. You talked about squeezing in a business degree between year three and year four. So you were studying medicine and business. You prepped for the USMLE. You co-founded a medical education startup called USMLE Pro. You created and hosted a podcast called The Doctor Is Out. And you work at Polaris and Stanford. Sounds like you had 10 different things going on at the same time. How did you find the time?
1: Yeah, I think what it comes down to for me personally, everything I've done, I've absolutely loved doing. And so it hasn't felt like work Mm. in the same way. It helps me be very productive. And this is just sort of my entire life just flourished in that chaos of constantly having things. And, you know, I I think everyone's different. But I I would say, like, figure out what makes you tick. And some people maybe... Like, even the whole well-rounded thing. Some people might be more like me where they have interests everywhere and they sort of have this like ADHD of passions and a trade, whether it's medicine or anything else, Mm -hmm. might end up being unsatisfying on its own or there might be yearning for something else. And if that's the case, then definitely venture beyond the walls of your domain. But for others, they may get deep gratification from being a content expert in one particular thing and owning that and you know, it maybe the idea of doing a ton of things can be overwhelming, mm-hmm. and that pressure might not be as productive. There's a lot of phenomenal, inspiring physicians who just become a master at their craft and devote decades to that craft. But it's a question of like figuring out who you are, what makes Mm -hmm. you tick, what your values are, where you would be happy waking up every single day, both on a personal level and a professional level and seeing what's out there and how that fits and start exploring the unknown unknowns.
0: Mm -hmm. Wow. We're already getting into some really good advice. I like this. So let's take this like you suggest, medicine first, then business. So now you work as a clinical assistant professor in Stanford primary care and population health. So how did you get there? What were the biggest obstacles you faced when you started as a physician and as a professor?
1: Yeah, well, I trained at Stanford. So being able to get a job at Stanford as a internal medicine doctor was, I guess, a natural extension. And for me, there was no better place to work then Stanford, based on my personal interests, I, I, I love to mentor and I love to coach and help build medical trainees journeys, mm-hmm. and then also your patients journeys through mm-hmm. their own health and chronic disease management.
0: Mm-hmm. So when medical students are on elective rotations, from your point of view, as now an assistant professor, what are attending physicians and what are these program directors, what are they looking for?
1: My first inclination is to say, be your authentic self and figure out your passion and just lean into it and run full steam ahead. Mm -hmm. But it comes with a caveat, and this has to do a little bit with the dark underbelly of the medical education system, Okay, which is that oftentimes there's a lot of pressures as medical students to put on a performance and not be yourself. Because whenever you ask a question, there's judgment that comes with that question if you are genuinely curious or inquisitive or something like that, it's almost like you're revealing another area of ignorance and it just seems insane. You're constantly assessed by all the people around you as a medical trainee. And I think it's very tragic because that's not a learning environment. You can't be both learning and assessed at the same time. And it really creates poor area for psychological safety for medical students. So when I say be your authentic selves, it's recognizing that sometimes the system really does not value that and will punish you for that. And Mm -hmm. for example, so I... Harvard Business School, there is a lesson what makes the most functional teams. So this is based on research that HBS had done with Google. So they'd studied a bunch of teams. And one of the key hallmarks of a high-functioning team is a team where there is high psychological safety mm-hmm. and where the members of the team do not feel pressure to cover or to pass mm. as something so covering you know, like interracial literature often is referred to when you are in an environment and you have to cover or pass like President Obama wrote about this in his autobiography a bit around passing as black, even though he's half black and half white. But in the professional sense, you know we talk about often like if you get an investment banking job and if you're a black man, you may need to cover and speak differently or if you're a gay man or woman may have to act differently or mm-hmm. you know, and you can't be your authentic self in those environments. Right because there isn't that psychological safety. But take it to a next degree. It's really environments where you may be afraid to ask questions because you're afraid to look ignorant. You're afraid to suggest ideas because you're afraid to look intrusive. You're afraid to like press further because there's fear of challenging the status quo. Areas where there isn't that psychological safety, where people are putting on a performance, that's when you end up with Enron, for example. So you have a bunch of Nobel laureates, and everyone's sort of just peacocking and, mm-hmm. and is scared. Mm-hmm. The medical education system really struggles with this, with the hierarchy of medicine, where you're told to be your authentic self and you're told to like pursue your passions. But you have to balance that with the fact that you're getting snippet assessments by people who have to provide evaluations and everyone has their own philosophy and values and everyone means well, but it can be quite taxing. And I honestly think that's why wellness, particularly third year medical school, takes a dive. So anyway, empowering yourself to realize that you have to play in this system, protecting yourself from being cynical about the system so that you don't lose your passions and not being discouraged by any signals that you might get during your training where you may feel like your true self or your authentic self is not good enough. Yeah. Because if you can do that and you can then hold on to your core passions, Mm -hmm. that is what will really differentiate yourself.
0: I think it touches on an important point. Take care of yourself. It's not all about impressing someone else or feeling like you said, like you don't belong or like you have to put on a mask and pretend to be someone else. It gets into imposter syndrome. I think a lot of students Uh, and then physicians suffer from that. And like you mentioned, in med school, it's very hierarchical. It's not so conducive to learning, which it seems paradoxical. But in my experience, it's even worse outside the U.S. because there's more of a mindset of a hierarchy built into the social culture. You don't question authority. But in the U.S., like generally, we're okay with questioning authority. You have to tell me why or I'm not going to do it. You know, places like Poland or in Korea, you don't ask why. You just do it. And so this culture isn't conducive to making the best teams. And so I think that if no one else is going to take it on their shoulders, then at least medical students can try to prepare themselves and kind of disrupt this not very learning conducive environment, and make it better for themselves.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's just product of where we are in our own social development as human beings and yeah. vis-a-vis how it applies to every single different trade that we do. And medicine's one of them. It's just a bit gradual, a little bit gradual, and it can be a little bit more of that change we want to see. And, and medicine in particular, I think the reason it could be like that, the hierarchy, is because there is enormous humility toward the process of caring for a patient. Mm-hmm. Just like the field of medicine, the vast amount of knowledge that is out there mm-hmm. that can just really always make you feel small, always make mm-hmm. you feel like you need to learn more, always make you feel like you are not informed. That pressure can result in us putting up our walls Mm -hmm. and creating some of this rigidity to protect ourselves from the pain of having to deal with the uncertainty and complexity and exhaustion of medicine. And it's just a natural human reaction and it will take some time for us to like therapize ourselves as a field. (laughs) Ironically, right? Because we're champions of wellness for others, but struggle to do it for ourselves.
0: Yeah, it can be a very unhealthy field. So your other passion seems to be investing. So let's switch gears and talk about Polaris Partners. It's a venture capital firm that invests in healthcare and biotech, right?
1: Yeah, biotech and healthcare services. Mm -hmm. So historically, Polaris in the mid-90s did tech and healthcare, and now we do... Almost exclusively healthcare investing. And then within healthcare, there's a bunch of sectors for investment. And I'll just sort of talk generally, too. You can invest and build companies in drugs, biotech, pharmaceuticals. Those drugs can be small molecules, which is the classic, like Tylenol, aspirin type of medication, or they can be biologics, antibodies, cell therapies, gene therapies. That's Mm -hmm. usually what's called like the biotech space. And those are therapeutic interventions. Those have very good fit with a biotech venture capital type of investment, because what VC is all about is taking bets on things that have high risk and high reward. And drugs are like that. Then there's devices and medical devices historically are a little bit trickier to invest in. So starting to get to the healthcare IT side of things, there's a new class of drugs, if you will. They're not really drugs, but is these things called digital therapeutics which are some type of digital intervention, anything from an iPhone app to virtual reality headset app that are trying to put themselves head-to-head against drugs. And they are sort of clinical programs and go through the FDA regulatory process a little bit like a drug.
0: So interesting.
1: Then there's healthcare IT, which can be everything from support software, software service businesses. In healthcare in particular, there are a lot of tech-enabled services Mm-hmm. Because a lot of healthcare IT in medicine requires behavioral change on the part of the healthcare system and the provider. And that's very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. And so you sort of have to own that and employ your own labor to try to bring that change oftentimes. And so that gets to more healthcare services. There's a lot of tech-enabled services.
0: Mm-hmm. That last one was yeah. like specifically for physicians delivering healthcare to patients.
1: Exactly, exactly. So let's say I have this great innovation that I think is going to work for patients, but the physician's not going to pay for it, the patient's not going to pay for it. And so oftentimes companies will try the tech enabled services business model, where they may open up their own clinic, for example, or they may provide like a medical staffing company, but they are using their tech to improve their labor more, or somehow create some type of value driving, either like improvement in outcomes or a reduction in costs or both mm-hmm. or faster or cheaper or better or whatever your value prop is. And yeah, so it's not uncommon to find tech enabled services companies in healthcare. There are a lot of them. So those are the, the sectors for healthcare generally. So for, for people who don't live in the US, the US healthcare system is very broken and most of our system pays for doing things. Just fee for service, which yeah. means that there's incentivization to do things to sick people, and there's been a lots of efforts in our convoluted healthcare system from the private and public sectors to try to change that model and pay for things a little bit differently, and that sets up the system a little bit differently. Where you're paying for performance and you pay more in a capitated way and you pay per member, per patient. Mm-hmm.
0: And then so you and Polaris, you dive in and you fund these that you're betting on that are going to be the next big thing, right?
1: You'd hope. That's the role of venture capital. It's to identify those things funded and help support it and make mm-hmm. magic happen. So a few of them will be successful and it's a very particular phenotype of investing and a very particular way of investing. A book I'd recommend to anybody who wants to learn about venture capital that came out this year is The Power Law. It describes it really well and sort of goes into the history of venture capital, how it came Mm -hmm. to be. It's very fascinating.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. So some of the guests that you've had on your podcast, you interview healthcare leaders and discuss improving healthcare, medical education sometimes.
1: Yeah. So the podcast, The Doctor is Out, is just interviewing docs who've done things outside of medicine. Some of them are in the business field, some of them aren't, and try to provide advice for clinical trainees through that and exposed to these alternative paths.
0: So what have you kind of found to be the biggest challenge with the U.S. healthcare system, if you had to pick one thing?
1: Oh, gosh. Reflecting on the U.S. healthcare system, why it's the way it is today and how it got here, Mm -hmm. a very simplistic way somebody could say, oh, the challenge in the US healthcare system is that it's privatized and it should, you know, just make it one single payer or whatever. And I think I think that would be actually it's almost like a, a lazy approach to the question because it is true we spend a lot of money on health administration just dealing with tons of different payers compared to other health systems We have huge challenges as regards to the overwhelming amount of medical debt that exists in our country, outer network billing, which is finally starting to be curbed, which I think is just atrocious tragedy of our healthcare system, and sort of every vested interest trying to be mission-driven for their patients, but also sort of pointing fingers. I'm I'm like looking at the pharmacy benefit management industry and the pharmaceutical industry and the, the squabbles between the payers and the providers. Everyone just points fingers elsewhere. Right. So There are a lot of different challenges to the complex web that is the U.S. healthcare system. And it's actually heartwarming to see such incredibly smart people working on this. Maybe the one thing that we could do better as a system is actually... Probably have our providers, our doctors. I point to the doctor specifically because we have special billing powers, these superpowers that nobody else does, at least in the US. <laughs> yeah. In being aware of the system that we're in and creating this mission driven ethos around the payment of healthcare early on, which is not really part of our medical education and mm-hmm. almost feels like there's a direct, almost intentional split between the medical profession and the business side of medicine. Yeah. And one could say that's really good because then you when you work for a hospital system, you just focus on your patient and you just focus on providing good quality care. And I think that is absolutely true. And as much as you can do that, that's great. Mm-hmm. But the issues come to play when you can't ignore that and it is actually affecting your patients and your clinical duty goes hand in hand with your fiduciary duties mm-hmm. to your patient because the biggest life stressors are that are out there are divorce And bankruptcy. And that will determine your patient's well being, how they manage their chronic diseases. And I think we need to understand and be empowered and and be involved as a clinical community why and where and how come things are as they are in the healthcare system so Mm -hmm. that we can continue to innovate and work toward it and culturally push ourselves to be able to create a healthcare system that provides that accountability. Right. So anyway, I don't know if that helps answer your question. <laughs> it's a complex question. and yeah, it, I think yeah. it requires a complex answer. Yeah,
0: for sure. Thank you for that. I think it's a really, really good answer because it is interconnected with so many things and you need a holistic approach to holistically take care of patients. So there's not yeah. one simple wave of magic wand. Boom, we have a better healthcare system. It's really, really ingrained in everything else. So Before we finish, do you have any last bits of advice beyond the textbook for our listeners?
1: My advice for clinical trainees would be if you think you are in that subset of people, which you may not be, who requires variety in life, you know, medicine is really good for the soul. But too much of it can really be crushing. And I think that's part of the reason why there can be really high burnout rates and depression in medicine. And so if you can find that something else, it does not have to be professional to give you that grounding and re-energize you. It can be really rewarding. You know, you don't live to work, you work to live. Yeah. ooh,
0: I like that. That's some excellent advice. So Sharif, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing all of your advice. I think it's really going to help a lot of students.
1: My privilege, Tanner. Thank you for having me.
0: And thank you for listening to another episode of the AMBOSS International Podcast. Definitely go and listen to Sharif's podcast as well. Today, we talked about investing in healthcare and some of the biggest challenges with medicine in the U.S. The links in the description can give you a more in-depth understanding of these concepts. If you like this episode, please give us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. You can check out the Amboss platform for your medical studies and sign up for a free
1: five-day trial at Amboss.com.